I planned to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. entrepreneurship scaling business plans then I became the CEO man are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world then you're listening to the right podcast ditch digger CEO we're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who'll be telling their amazing rags to riches stories these entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success we'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. All right, man, let's go. Let's roll them. Hey, so uh, here, we're here today with my buddy Dan Picaro. He, uh, he's a uh, serial entrepreneur and a, uh, you know, in the, in the, I would say tech, IT business, technology and IT business. Um, Dan's uh, been a friend of mine for boy, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years, maybe something like that. And uh, what an awesome dude Dan is, and love him and his his wife. Uh, they're they're just great people. So I'm happy. I'm really proud to have Dan on this uh, on, our, on Ditch on Ditch Digger CEO because he's a perfect example of somebody that's taken risk and 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 done some awesome things in his life um, that uh, that, that I, I'm inspired by, and anybody else should be. So we've got uh, Dan Percaro. Introduce yourself, baby. I'm Dan Picaro from uh, PSM Partners, Friend of Gary's for a long time. And just like you said, yeah, serial entrepreneur. Very nice to be here. I appreciate you inviting me. Hey, Dan. Thanks, thanks for being here, buddy. And I got uh, Robbie on the, on the line here. Robbie is, is, a part, is one, of our, one of our leaders in our, in our business, the Rayvine Group now. And uh, Robbie, introduce yourself, brother. Hey, what's going on, Dan? Uh, yeah, I'm Robbie. I recently joined the Rayvine Group as of the last month and a half, two months here. Uh, and I had actually was originally introduced to Gary and Austin through Site Technologies, which was their uh, startup that they spun out uh, a few years back and had been fortunate to understand the inner workings of the Raybine Group and uh, beyond grateful for the opportunity right now. And prior to being at Site and Raybine, I spent four years at LinkedIn. So if there's ever anything I can do to help you on LinkedIn, let me know. Oh, I'll remember that. Thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you as well. Yeah, so um, so so Robbie uh, is a very inquisitive guy, uh, like like uh, Quentin and uh, any any of my other buddies and partners I have on this show here. And I, my my goal is always Dan to get a perspective of a you know young mind besides my my uh, mature. Well, never I can notice ever call me mature actually, but they're going to start as old as I'm getting. So my older mm-hmm. mind, right? Is it is different from Robbie's, and I expect Robbie to kind of think from a different paradigm as he asks uh, our entrepreneurs questions. So, 
Uh, that's the idea, and it works out pretty well. I'm, I'm excited, excited always to do this. Um, so Dan, uh, we, we like to start kind of from the, the from the very beginning. Uh, so our, our our guests on our episodes, we like them to start. Uh, you know, we love to hear about the business, their business, where they're at today. But we like to start from the beginning of where their ideas of entrepreneurship came from, maybe, or, or you know, what what it was like growing up in there, and and how the, how they became who they are today. So if you want to start back, however, as as a kid or wherever you want, we'd love to hear just a brief uh, understanding of where where Dan came from. Well, I'd like to say I grew up in a company that had a lot of um, you know entrepreneurs in it, but I really didn't. Uh, so. I didn't get any of that from my, my family. Um, I just, uh, I grew up in a you know, great family, a loving family. We were super close. Um, I had a lot of support. So if anything contributed as a younger person um, to you know, where I find myself today would probably be all that support and everything that I had um, growing up. Had a you know, great family, great childhood, and you know, two great parents. So have a you know, great, great experience growing up, but no entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really anything from that. It was, I, I mean, that feeling of entrepreneurship really came just from a very young age of, it was more so less wanting to own my own business and, and more just being comfortable being in charge and almost to the point of being uncomfortable as I got older, not being in charge. Mm -hmm. um, and not being able to kind of lead and and that was was kind of the feeling that I remember most you know as a younger person so so basically control freak at a very young age as you're, you're saying yeah I guess I don't know, I don't know <laughs> if it's control freak or if it was uh, just a comfort level of wanting to I don't know just kind of own things and kind of take take control lead um, mm -hmm. I remember being young, working in this, uh, this pizza restaurant that I worked in. Um, and I made, you know, super, super good friends. there. really friends I still have today, right? 40 years later, but they, um, they were just wonderful. And, but I was always trying to make things better in that restaurant and always trying to help them. And, and, and they would let me, I'd be like, Hey, what if we did a advertisement in the paper? for this. And they're like, yeah, why not go ahead and you can develop it. And so I would do things like that, right? I was always kind of comfortable trying to be in charge or to, or to try to make things better or to make things grow. And, mm -hmm. and those were some of my earliest thoughts about, you know, owning a business, right? I didn't know I wanted to own a business. I just felt more comfortable with, you know, that feeling of, of kind of trying to take a lead. Sure. So, so awesome and so did you do any, anything uh, so pizza place what other businesses were you involved in or what, what where'd, you, where'd you work or whatever as a kid so through high school college whatever oh my gosh so i would say working you know different places they even worked at mcdonald's when i was really young but i worked at that pizza place like all through high school and then through college as well and that became literally like a second family to me those those people were you know, super close. I was close to the owners. It was a, you know, a man and wife who owned it. And I was close to all their children. Um, I was close to their cousins. I was really like part of the family. So I stayed there kind of for better or for worse, you know, like, because they were like family, right? So uh, really up until I got my first job out of college. So that was, 
that was really where I kind of maybe I gained a little bit of business skill, but you know, just, you know, good memories, good friendships. Cool. So yeah, so friends with them today, you know, the, ch the kids now. Awesome. And then uh, in, so you went to college. Where'd you go to college, Dan? And, and I went to Northern, to Northern Illinois, um, no. Huskies. Still got a good football team. So I went to Northern and um, yeah, that was uh, stayed in uh, close in DeKalb. Um, they had a good business school and I knew I wanted to do something in business. So that was generally why I went there. When you were in Northern, did a friend of mine, uh, Timmy T, Tim T Terrell, did he play there as a quarterback? And you're, or was he like, like a few years ahead of you? I think he's probably he a few a years little bit ahead of me. Yeah, Timmy T is a great buddy of mine. He, he was the quarterback there. I think the first quarterback to bring him to a bowl, a bowl win back then. Yeah, so that was definitely after after I was out, or maybe a little bit no, before. No, no, right before. It was before. before. Yeah, I remember they had a bowl win a few years before I got there. Yeah, so and, Timmy, Timmy. And, yeah so you're someday right. You got, someday you got to meet Timmy Terrell, Timmy Terrell. I call him Timmy T. He's one of my good friends, and uh, you pro you've probably been in the same parties with him at my, at my house or whatever, but you love him. He's a cool guy. So, okay, so so Northern, what would you learn there, and what was your uh, what did you take away from Northern that, that took you to the next step in your life? Well, I started with a computer science major, and, and I realized after a while that that just was not me. Um, I like computer science, but I didn't want to be like a developer or an operational type person. So I switched uh, in, you know, just in time, my junior year, and I got accepted into College of Business, and I, um, and I switched to business and marketing in general. So... I was very fortunate to have picked the right thing. You know, I didn't have the, the mentorship of, you know, someone who had good experience in business saying, this is really where you should go. Uh, so I was just really just lucky, right? So I picked marketing because I looked at the courses and they all interested me. And it turned out that that was the right thing for me. I learned the right things and I was comfortable uh, with that major and, so that's what I did, marketing, marketing major at Northern. What was your first opportunity out of Northern? So out of Northern, my first opportunity was at a, uh, at a computer supply company. And back then, people used to order all sorts of computer supplies um, for a lot of mainframes and mini computers. Uh, There's really not a lot of networks uh, going on then. Networking was still like a, a earlier type technology that was really just catching on. And then I left there after about four or five months and I went to a company, a consulting company that really kind of changed my, my career. And they did networks. They were setting up networks for companies. And that was still when co companies were saying, what's a network? And they were, uh, the owner was a young guy. He's still a, a good friend of mine. I literally talked to him last week. So we've stayed in touch for all that time. I don't even know how long it is, 33 years ago. Uh, but he was a really smart guy. He was very innovative, and he saw that it was the future. So I started out for, with them in a, just a, a purchase, I think it was a purchasing agent, right? But they, uh, but this is kind of an example, right? I was constantly saying, hey, what else can I do? Um, I can help you in this part. I can help you in that part of the company. And he's, I think he was like, you're, you're weird. You can go do it, but I'm not going to pay you anymore. I'm like, oh, you don't have to pay me more. I just want to do that. Oh, so I think he must have thought I was really weird because uh, I wanted to 
help out in different areas. But I think even at a really young age, I, I was both interested in and I felt that it was advantageous to know different parts of the business. Sure. So at a young age, I was, after taking responsibility for different things, I, I kind of was running the whole back office for this company, purchasing operations, administration, and finance, even though I didn't have, you know, wasn't an accountant, but I picked it up and and I was a you know young manager at a at a super young age. I was I don't know maybe twenty four or something like that. And huh. um, that was I guess I kind of going back to that point. I was just comfortable leading, right? So that that's how I kind of started out. Sounds like you also uh, you had to, had an innate ability. I mean, some people talk about this one tenet of success is always striving to be worth more than you're paid, right? Whatever, whatever you're paid, you're always striving to be worth way more. So you're, you're just people look at you as a great value no matter what you do wherever you go because you're always striving to give more than you get. And it sounds like that's kind of the way your mindset was. Um, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to do this. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And they're going to they're gonna, you know, love me being here. And, I'm, I'm, and, and they're going to they're gonna love me be, you know, being a leader maybe someday or whatever it is, right? Um, but it, it sounds like you you constantly had that mentality, which is something that we all look at when we're in leadership positions of, wow, look at that person go, man. We gave them that one job. And they're doing these five jobs, right? And holy cow, what else can they do? And, and this person should be a leader someday, right? Uh, so that's pretty cool that you had that, 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 uh, that mindset at an early age. It just, it did. I don't know why. I don't know. That's just the way I was born. I'd like to say, you know, I read this book or I took this class, but that's just the way I was built. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to advance myself. I wanted to, to, you know, to grow my career. Right. And, and I was willing to work hard. I would stay late after work. I would say, Hey, um, network engineer guy, if you stay late with me and, teach me about this and that, you know, I'll buy you, you know, buy, I'll buy you some drinks. You know, would you help me learn some of the stuff? He's like, oh, sure. So I, I would do that and I would, you know, work hard and I never asked for more money. I always felt like if I did a good job, it would just come. The money would just yeah. come to me. So that was the approach that I took and it was a good one, right? So I quickly moved up. And I also, I think I also realized that it was easier to kind of move up and make an impact, more importantly, like in a smaller company mm -hmm. than it was a, a bigger company. Sure. That's, that's what I felt. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of CEOs that did the same thing for bigger companies and they moved up quickly there. But for me, I, I felt a smaller company was a little bit easier to kind of take on a lot of responsibility uh, quicker. Yeah. So you had the, you had, the, you had this young founder or owner of that company and, and, uh, and then how big was the company and how long did you stay there before you left? And then, and then where'd you go next? Um, let's say, so I was there for, um, I was there for about five years and that, that owner had, he built the company up and then he sold it. And then when he sold it, um, I saw all these salespeople making a lot of money, like more than twice what I was, even though I'd gotten a lot of raises and stuff. So I'm like, that can't be that hard. And I was already in sales in a previous job. So I went into sales for this new company. They, had, they did a roll-up, right? So it was my first exposure to a roll-up as well. They had bought a lot of consulting companies, about 30 of them, that were just like 
um, my friends who started this small consulting firm, we maybe had, I don't know, 25 people, let's say. And mm -hmm. so now I was part of a bigger company and there was 30 locations and I, and I said, Hey, I want to go into sales. And, and they agreed to let me go into sales. And I think I was smart enough. I, I have no idea how I knew this, but I figured like, they're not going to need me. They're going to roll up all that stuff. They're not going to be like, I'd say a, a purchasing guy or an accountant in every thing. They're going to consolidate that. Sure. So I felt like I would have been out of a job anyways. So uh, it was a good opportunity to go into sales. I went into sales and uh, I couldn't believe it, but I eventually, you know, within a year, I think I became the number one or number two salesperson in that whole company. Um, so this, 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 this is the rolled up company, the new company. This is the rolled up company, yeah. Right? So they're yeah, much so bigger than what they were when you were, you know, so they got to be a much bigger company, like five times, 10 times the size or what? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was a big company then. They, they had 30 companies. So maybe that was a, I don't know, uh, a $200 million company maybe. Um, so it gave you opportunity to sell a lot of products probably from a stronger company. They could, they could, uh, right. probably fill the order stronger in a bigger market. Right. Yeah. So I learned a lot about doing bigger deals and, and a more sophisticated sales approach and, but you know, a lot of it was the same. It was just building relationships and, and meeting needs and building new ones and expanding those relationships. So I, I was doing well in sales, um, but the company itself was not doing well. So that was, you know, it became a really valuable lesson to me. Uh, I think you learn, at least I learn, like by people who do things really well. And, and I also learn when people mess up. So they screwed up that roll up. Um, they ran out of cash. They kind of acted like a big company when they weren't. Um, they, I don't know, they, I later learned they didn't structure the deal very well and they didn't have enough um, dry powder to, you know, to withstand different things and um, people left and it was just, you know, a lot of, lot of mistakes uh, that I later kind of put to use. You know, I kind of learned from those mistakes about how not to do a position and, and how to use debt effectively and things like that. Yeah, a lot of great, probably uh, non-competes, non-competition agreements as well. How do those work, right? right. So many yeah, lessons in all those that. acquisitions. Yeah, how cool is that? Yeah, yeah so, so many that. lessons you could, you could pay to learn those in any university, right? Oh my God, uh, you're absolutely right. You couldn't learn uh, those at all at a university. Yeah, so go ahead, Robbie, you're gonna say something? Yeah, Dan, if I, I think it's uh, obviously unique and a compliment to you that you were a manager at 24. Uh, not many people have the opportunity to say that. So I'm, I'm curious, having gone from being managing at 24 to a sales rep in your next uh, opportunity down the road, uh, what sort of values or lessons did you learn as a manager that you apply as a sales rep that maybe set you up for better success or, or had the foundations to at least build upon? Are you saying what, what did I learn as a sales rep that would help me later in life and my later in career? Uh, actually, uh, back before then. So when you were the managing at 24 within the smaller company that actually was rolled up into the bigger where you become, became the sales rep, uh, I'm interested to know what sort of takeaways that you had or lessons you learned as a manager that actually helped you in sales and moving forward in your career? Oh, you know, that's a good question. So I think 
just seeing how things flowed, right? How, uh, let's say in a professional services business, like how an, how an order came in and how resources were allocated and how things got billed and, um, and just the whole flow of it, I think, kind of helped me, right? And it helped me to set better expectations for the client to know what was realistic. You know, many times a salesperson will say, yeah, we can get that done in a week, right? But I would, I would know better, right? And I knew our resources and their skill sets and, and what we had and what we didn't have. So I think that that helped me. But, but really, the, this is a common trait I, I would attribute to, to my success. I, early on, I don't know how I knew it. Uh, I think I said this before. I knew to be successful, I needed to be well-rounded. I knew that, you know, to me, well-rounded means um, sales, uh, management, finance, strategy, operations, right? Let's say really being well-rounded in all those areas. So by the time I went into sales, I was exposed to four of those five things. I was exposed to sales, management, operations and finance. I was not exposed to strategy, I, but I kind of was because I was exposed to a bad strategy, right? Mm-hmm. To, that, that didn't work, which, which aided me later on. So I don't know how I knew that, but I would tell anyone that wants to advance their career, like that, that well-roundedness is just the key to being a successful leader. And even today when we train leaders and we hire leaders, we look for as much of that kind of skill set filled in as possible. And you don't often find people that are really good at all those things. And, you know, I think I, we just try to work around that. But the more well-rounded, it seems, the better the leader. And that certainly helped me, that uh, being able to do it and given the ability to do it and, and all those authority control at a young age, making mistakes, learning for those, that helped me. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's fantastic. Which, and then, and then uh, Dan, from that job, uh, you know, when that, when that uh, roll up went bad and all that, what, what was your next uh, opportunity? So I was still there. I was in sales. I was doing really well. And then uh, a company approached me and they said, uh, this was a big network consulting company as well. But they were, they were the same size, let's say, but they were, um, they were more experienced. They had been around for like, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. And they had a very big East Coast presence and a very big West Coast presence. And they wanted to invest and start a central region. So they had maybe five offices, you know, between the East and West Coast. And they said, we want to start in Chicago. We have one employee there um, who's supporting just one Chicago client and we want to blow it up. And so they hired me to be a regional vice president, to be part of the management team and to grow this. And I had, you know, I was coming from a sales background and in some operational background. So they took a, you know, I was young, I don't know, maybe it's 27, 28. Um, and they took a shot on me to, to do that. So I, that was my next thing. So I started that, that branch and region for them. And uh, it worked out wonderful, right? So I, I um, thank God, uh, you know, I know that I had some good breaks and I leveraged some relationships and I closed some deals and those led to other deals. And so we, I eventually grew that office to 
there's maybe, I don't know, 40 people there. And then I opened up another office in Texas and Dallas, and there was another 20 people there. So uh, it was super successful. And I, I had my own P&L finally, and I was running kind of like my own business. So I, I learned, I would say, the most right there. That was where I learned a lot. Um, and that I company, a, was in a company sorry, still, still, are they still around today? No, no, no. Like everybody else, they got sold. Um, so um, one of my clients actually bought that company. So one of the companies that I sold to was R.R. Donnelly and Sons, uh, world's largest printer at the time. And they, um, they knew that printing was going to be changing, so they started diversifying and they started buying businesses. So they had this other services business and they matched us with that. Uh, they bought my, uh, my company. Uh, I was a shareholder in that company, so that was my, my first kind of go at, um, at getting uh, you know, some money for equity, right? So I was part of that deal and, the, um, and then they bought us and then they matched us with this other division and then they did an IPO. Um, this is when oh, in the dot-com area, you know, everyone's doing an IPO, but we had real revenue, real earnings. Uh, and um, so that was, you know, drinking from the fire hose. You know, I built, I built a whole region and then I went through an acquisition. I got some money for that. And then I went through um, an IPO um, and then I was part of a publicly held company and I got to understand what that was. Wow. Um, so that was, that was kind of like what, what happened there. So I was there for a good five years. So here um, you're still, you're still less than 33 years old and you've been through all that already. Yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think back now. I'm going to say I was maybe 27 to 32. I was there, you know, something yeah. like that. Right. Wow. Um, so it stayed there. Um, Donnelly you know, had owned it. We were a public health company, but then, um, so I was really, really close to the CEO of that company. His name is uh, Tom Bradbury. He still has a company um, uh, called Premier Technology in New York. And uh, he was uh, just a real mentor to me, uh, probably the you know, most influential mentor in my, in my career. And we were um, very close. And then they wanted him gone when they uh, did this IPO. They wanted to roll up different managers to do different things. And uh, it was a huge mistake, but they, you know, so they let him go. And then someone else came in and we didn't get along. And, um, and then it was just bad thing after bad thing happened. So I said, you know, this is time for me to go. So I left that company and uh, the guy who started the first company I was with, that first consulting company that, that I said I had talked to last week, he started another company. He was really good. His name is Randy Zahora. Um, and Randy uh, was, you know, I, I stayed very close friends with him. He was a great guy and very innovative. He's another important person in my career. And he, he was really good at seeing things and investing in them before they really blew up. So the first one, he invested in network consulting before anyone really did that. And then uh, there was a product called Lotus Notes that was really taking the business world by storm. And it was really nothing. And he's like, this is going to be huge. I'm going to invest in this because I think this is really going to be powerful in business. And he was right. So he built that company and he maybe got it to, I don't know, uh, three, four million and it was very profitable. He was doing great. And 
and he had known that I had gone through a sale and, a, and an IPO. So he's, he said, I approached him and, and we worked out a deal because he felt like I could help him um, build that company up and sell it and we could all make a lot of money. So I became a partner there. I, I, he, I was granted equity and that was my goal was to help him grow it, help him find a buyer, help him negotiate the deal and help him sell that company. So what was, the name of that, what was the name of that company, Dan? That company was called Work Group Productivity Corporation. And we, we found a great buyer. We built it up. I expanded nationally. We opened an office in Denver, an office in California, I think. And um, I think uh, revenues maybe tripled or something or to three to nine million. I mean, it was really, really going well. But I, um, I had learned from that previous company. I knew what a deal looked like. I knew what a deal structure looked like. I knew what a buyer would want to see in a company. So mm -hmm. I kind of learned to reverse engineer the company. This was super valuable experience that I'd learned and I really put it into action for Randy's company. And I knew about, you know, EBITDA and debt and deal structure. And, and I, I knew what that company would look for. And they were looking for every single thing that I was prepared. So when they were interested in us, I mean, I had, I had all the documents and everything ready to give to them. Right. And um, I was just, you know, completely prepared and that deal went through and it was a, just a crazy, crazy good deal. And everyone was happy. I mean, uh, I made money as a partner. There was another partner. We, we, you know, he made money. My friend Randy made a ton of money um, and it was a, uh, it was great. And it was a good company who bought it too. Um, they were a publicly held company and, I got along really good with them. And then they said, um, hey, we like you. Um, uh, what are you gonna do? You know, do you wanna stay? Do you wanna go? I'm like, you know, I think I wanna go. I think I'm finally ready to do my own thing. And they said, well, let us fund it. We'll fund it. How old, were you, how old were you at this point? In what year? Say, I was uh, 34 years old. 34 years old. This would have been 1998. So, and I, and I almost took the money. They were gonna give me I think 15 to 20% of the ownership, they were going to fund it. And, uh, and I almost did that. I'm like, you know, I've, I've gone through a couple of deals now. I got money on, on those last two deals as, as, you know, being equity holder. And that was, you know, probably the toughest decision of my life to not take that money to use my own money. So I had amassed some savings, always was a good saver growing up and had these deals where I made some money. And I basically took all that money, every dollar of it, and I invested it in my, my own company. And I lived on nothing, right? I mean, just, I remember just going to the bank and taking out five grand to go pay the bills or to do this and then buy food. So that was a huge decision. And, uh, you know, I would give my wife credit for pushing me and my, and my dad and my friends, uh, my old CEO that I mentioned, um, you know, both CEOs said my, my friend Tom uh, Bradbury and Randy Zahora, they, they both were very influential in pushing me. And, and I took that leap to start my, the company I had before this one called Project Leadership Associates. And I saw a gap in the marketplace. So I knew how to, by this time, I knew how to buy a company, sell a company, grow a company. Uh, I saw how it was growing Position. well. Yeah, exactly. I knew how, how to do it, how to do it. 
I've seen it done well. I've seen it done poorly. Um, I understood, you know, I understood how to grow a company from an enterprise value standpoint to, um, to create value for shareholders. So I grew, um, you know, just a phenomenally good company. It was called Project Leadership Associates. And from 1998, I had it, and then I sold it in 2012. So, and you grew, you grew it from what to what? From nothing, of course, to, to... I grew from one employee, me, to we had about 256 employees um, and about $50 million in revenue. Awesome. Um, but I was... So I think seeing different things done certain ways, right? Uh, done well and done you know, not so well. I felt like there was a gap in the marketplace. Um, in our world, people, there were... The average... IT consulting company in Chicago sold a lot of product and, and let's say 50% product sales and 50% service sales. Mm -hmm. But I saw a gap that to do with the larger companies were doing to do all, all services, no product and to bill not on a fixed fee basis, but on a time and materials basis. And now it's done all the time, but you know, in 1998, it was, really just like the bigger companies were doing that. And my product offering was a little bit different than other companies were of that size. Um, that was the second differentiator. I had different service offerings and- uh, So, 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 so go and let, let's tell us a little bit about the differentiation. We, we love, you know, we love talking about it because we believe it's, a, it's the lifeblood of a, of a successful growing, uh, you know, organization. Well, so to start with, it was different than what it ended up, right? Because I believe that you grow companies in stages, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what was my strategy at first? It was just to sell whatever the hell I could to go get my head above water and get cash flow positive. So I was always, always focused on earnings. Um, I, I did not care about revenue. Not to say that companies that focus on revenue, let earnings come later is bad, you know, like amazon.com did that, right? But it just wasn't my way. It didn't suit my makeup. So I was really, really focused on earnings. So I wanted to grow a company that, um, that had enough cash flow and, but, but made money quickly. And we made money, you know, you wouldn't believe it, but from month one, we, we kind of made a tiny profit in month one, month two, made a little bit more, made a little bit more. We, we had, um, I'd never lost money in any month of my existence before I sold that, 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 that company. Um, that's, not com that's not common. It was, it was just, I don't know, just a, a great run of luck or I'll tell you one thing. I had like awesome people. Uh, that, that worked there, but we can get into it in a little bit. But to answer your question, how I differentiated myself, as we got a little bit bigger, I had, um, I did, I focused on a vertical market. So, and then I developed tech, um, it was easier to develop solutions for that market. So I understood the way that market worked and what was important to them. And I differentiated myself from fewer competitors who only focused on them. That, mar that vertical market was legal. So we were, you know, my company became the largest legal technology consulting company doing the stuff that we did in, in the country. Um, hmm. And wow. there were, I don't know, just thousands of law firms. So it, it, at the end, I think we had about 450 law firms. And 
So that was one, right? Focus on legal. Second thing I did to differentiate myself is that we had a large amount of different services. So I believed that if we got into an account, we, we could cross sell multiple different things. And I know that you've done the same thing, Gary, with, you know, you do a lot of different things. Um, you started with paving and roofing and, and all that. And that's, that was how I, I did it. We, I felt like I wanted fewer relationships, but I wanted to do more with them. So this was a, a very strategic concept that for me, I wanted to create long-term strategic recurring relationships. And I felt that if I can do a lot of different things for them, I was more valuable than if I can only do one thing. Sure. It's also a little bit, since I, I was so focused on earnings, it was also a little bit more recession proof. Sometimes um, they would be done with this, one of the things that we did, but then we would pivot to something else that they did need. So we were working, it also allowed us to work with different aspects, different areas of the company. So we were working, um, in you know the accounting department the it department the um the sales group so we were in different areas of a company cross-selling different services and that was a another key differentiator that we had and then the the third one was we um about two-thirds of the way through i acquired a small firm that did business strategy because I felt like the, the larger firms, I'll say like Accenture, that's what they did, right? They do business strategy work and then they do IT work um, and then also accounting. But we, we did, um, I, I felt like adding business strategy would get me to the CEO and it would also allow us to cross sell more IT services. So I acquired a small business strategy firm and that really, really worked. We, um, I was very, I was always into building a game plan, building a long-term plan and following that plan. You know that personally from all these yep. years. And that, you know, I was really able to see it in action and that we were able to do some enormous deals. We did a deal with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange where they, they bought Chicago Board of Trade and they hired my little firm to work on the integration of those two firms. It was um, not the IT integration, just the integration. Like what are the products that we're gonna now sell as this combined organization and who should stay and who should go? And, and we competed against a lot of big firms. We had strong relationships there and we closed that deal. That was probably they paid us maybe $6 million for that. And um, so we did a lot of this business strategy work as well, which helped us become even more strategic on the IT side. So at the, in the end, it was maybe 20% business strategy, 80% IT, and I had various forms of IT. So that would be the third way I differentiate myself. So those three things uh, were the, the key to my success in, in growing that company. And, and it worked that you're able to get in front of the CEOs a lot more often, right, with that strategy compared to yes. just, just sticking with the IT, right? Exactly. So we had a lot of different relationships within a company, which allowed us to keep them for a long time. Um, the other key thing that made me successful was all the people that worked for me. We had um, just, you know, just the, the best culture that I've ever seen in a company. And I know I'm saying that from a very biased standpoint, but it was just, it was just unbeatable, just fantastic. We had, um, at one point, 
there was a 10 year period where we had 2% voluntary turnover. Um, just wow. no left. And we were making a lot of money. We were sharing it. I had given uh, a large majority of people, maybe 50 people stock in the company. We were paying their dividends on that. So we were sharing, um, um, sharing the earnings with them. Uh, it was just a phenomenal culture. And we had built so many great leaders there well-rounded leaders, kind of getting back to my other point, we built a lot of great, well-rounded leaders. Many of these people have their own business now. Um, and we just had a great culture. No one left. We were all very close friends. And that's what um, I would attribute, really. I started it, right? But I had some great people to help me really, really grow it. So you cross-trained a lot more than most, maybe. Cross-trained a lot we, more. Than we built great leaders. Um, and as we got bigger, we formalized that training. We had our own management training program. Um, and we really believed in giving leaders their, you know, I always felt like it was silly to have someone be a leader and not give them the authority to do the things they needed to do, right? So, and I see this all the time from small businesses. They have managers, but that, man, that manager really can't make a decision. Right. My managers could. They they had their own PL, their own business plan, and their own budget. And we had six different practice areas. And so I had six different practice leaders. And they were real, well-rounded executives. And we built them into be great executives. And that was, I think, just the key. So I tried to build a lot of dams in there, push down my skill set to them. I tried to mentor them and it, you know, it really worked. Uh, but we, I let them fail. I let them make decisions. I, I let them, they had, uh, could spend up to $50,000 without approval. They could hire someone without approval. They, you know, we had checks and balances in place, but I let them, I let them fail. Right. And, um, and, and then, uh, and then uh, what did the leadership training look like? What did the leadership training look like for your managers, Dan? It was on that well-rounded scale that, we, that I was mentioning before. So we trained them in sales and operations and finance um, and management and in strategy. And so they would have sessions in those five different areas. And with many of the people, almost all the people, we would stress one or two more than others based on what their background was. So, um, Everyone's not good at everything, so they would have gaps, and we would try to fill in those gaps with, with that training. And the training was good, but it was really the, the mentoring that came after the training. That's what really worked. Um, it, I think that that's where the real training happens, right? So I think it starts kind of in the classroom type, type training, but it was really more like mentoring and going through and say, okay, let's make this decision. What do you think we should do? I'm seeing this. What do you see? That type of mentoring, I think, was super important. Robbie, isn't that something that mentoring comes into every conversation almost when you're talking to leaders? Without fail. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and I, I really like the – you were for sure progressive in, at the point in time where you were thinking far enough ahead to involve the strategies so you could work with the C-suite, you could develop stronger relationships with your clients. Uh, it's not an easy strategy internally for you to fulfill – I'd be curious from your perspective to get an understanding of what sort of those training materials for onboarding for all internal parties did you guys actually implement for a successful rollout of the cross-selling 
that your team was ultimately set up for success during conversations with clients? Well, that's, that's a good question. Yeah, we would, we had regular cross-selling meetings, right? So, and we had a, uh, you know, I had a really good financial package uh, because I'm really focused on earnings, right? So my financial package was detailed and it went out on time every month to the entire leadership team. Um, one of the reports in that package was a cross-selling report. It listed all our clients and it would list, you know, on one side, all our clients and at the top, all our, all our practices. And it would have a number in each box. Did, did this company buy software development? Did this company buy network integration? Did this company buy that? And if they did, how much? And I did it over a two-year period because you can't, if you're cross-selling, you don't cross-sell everything something right away. It takes time to nurture a relationship and introduce new things for them. So right. we would look at over a two-year period and we would say, hey, how come, um, how, how come company ABC is not buying this? And we would talk about it. And well, I've already asked them and they're not interested. Well, is there something else that we can do? Maybe we have that seminar. Can we invite them to that? I would think it would really fit. We would, you know, just keep talking it through all the time, right? So that was one way that we did it. But that was not the best way to, to make it happen. The best way to make it happen was to ingrain it into our culture. So there are two things that we ingrained into the culture. One, everybody sells. So we, I said long ago when I started the company, I cannot keep this thing afloat by myself. If you have to help me, you have to act like this is your company too. And, and a large portion of them, it was their company because I'd given them shares in the company. So I'm like, you have to help me. We have to work together. And we would try to find deals at existing clients or to find, try to find new clients. And everybody has an uncle and cousins and brothers and sisters that work at different companies. And we train them to try to uncover opportunities. They didn't have to go try to sell something. They had to just say, I know that there's something going on here. Great, uh, we'll call them and we'll give you credit for it if, um, if we close a deal there. That was a key thing, right? So that was ingrained in the, into the culture, but we ingrained cross-selling into the culture as well. So there are those two things that were just part of the culture and it became so strong that as the years went by, if, if you weren't doing it, if you weren't trying to expand a relationship through cross-selling or you weren't trying to find a new relationship, you know, you were, people were like, well, what are you doing? Why aren't you helping? You know, we got to keep this right. going. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy, Dan, where that you'd stand out like a sore thumb if you're not doing it, where in most organizations you stand out like a, you know, just, just, just shine and gleam and stand out if you do do it, you know, where in your organization you train them to do it. And if they don't do it, it's just going to be in your culture. It's just going to be noticed and seen, right? I mean, it's kind of like, so you're, you're basically teaching them not to basically sell and close deals, but basically find the fishing holes, right? Find the exactly. fishing holes that we can go fish in, right? I love we, it. I love it. I'll give you a couple of examples. So one, um, we had a client, uh, British Petroleum, and we were there to do a small project, a um, $100,000 project. And my consultant who was there overheard them say that they were having trouble with a data analytics project. And we had a data analytics practice. 
And he said, I don't know if this is an opportunity, but uh, I heard them say that this is, they can't, they're swamped, they can't do the work in this area. So yeah. he told his manager, that manager told the other, you know, practice leader of the other group, we got that deal. That was a million dollar deal. Wow. A million, a million dollars. So, um, you know, obviously at the company meeting, we brought that guy on stage and we, we told everybody about it. But that was a great example of like cross-selling and, and how to do it. Uh, and I'll give you another indication of how well it worked. We had, let's say there was roughly 50 million at the end in sales. About 13 of that came from sales. So the other 37 came from everybody else. I mean, everybody in that company sold, uh, not just managers and CEOs. Uh, you know, I'm like my HR director found deals. My CFO found deals. Uh, everybody found a deal. And it just, <laughs> just proliferated across the so, whole company. So Robbie is actually, actually a young leader in sales and he's, he's leading a, a bunch of our sales team right now. Dan, so what a, what a perfect, uh, perfect podcast for him to be a part of listening to you. And, and, and I explain it because again, that's not common, right? It's just not common that organizations uh, understand that sales is a lifeblood and, and all of us are sales in sales. If we, if we want to be, and if we all care about the, the business we're in, the industry we're in, we don't have to actually sell, but find those fishing holes, right? And sell if you like to sell. And I'm, I'm sure you guys have your subject matter experts uh, that probably close the deals and, and, and uh, make it easy for that, that person that sniffs out the fishing holes, right? Yeah, we didn't even need them to sell. They just had to see an opportunity. They didn't even have to talk to anybody. But the key was to give them as much adulation for spotting that out as if they did close it. And I think a lot of companies make that mistake. You didn't close nice. the deal. You just found it. Someone else closed it. No, we were like, you spotted it. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't have had it. And we're, you know, we would give them bigger bonuses and they would get, you know, obviously very well compensated for, for doing that. And, but it was more the adulation. It was more like, like saying good job and we wouldn't have gotten it without you. And right. then I think that that kind of helped them, um, them as, as a whole team gain more confidence. Well, if this guy can spot something, I can spot something. Right, and we Absolutely. had a large, large amount of people who were super good at it, and then others who were just, you know, identified things, and we would say, hey, you're just as good as the guys who can close it from start to finish. So my, my challenge to Robbie now is to, is to in a, within a, in about a year, I want to look back and say, holy cow, man, you've been amazing, and I've inspired everybody to find those fishing holes, right, <laughs> and, and, and be part of the sales team. And, and you're, the way you, uh, the, the award system you built, Rob, is amazing, right? Where'd you get all that? He's to look back and say, well, remember Dan. Remember Dan when we did that podcast? <laughs> what do you think, Robbie? Yeah, absolutely. It'd be like the shark tank when you follow how the companies are doing. I'm just going to follow up with Dan and say like, hey, thank you for the advice. That was incredible. Yeah, but Dan wouldn't mind if you call him once in a while just to ask him what he thought about what you're doing and the structure you're building for that. Because yeah, something we always you know we always talk about, but boy, it just does never it does never happen. It's probably our fault more than anybody else. Our fault that we do not have a system that that gives the accolades we should to those that 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 just say, hey, I you know just so you know, I told our sales gal or guy about this lead and they, and we we hit it right and it was oh well good job thank you right. But it should be a little more than that probably. Right, so that's that's a it great really lesson. Isn't, 
What I learned is that it's not the money that you give them that that really motivates them. I mean, it's it, it's a motivator for sure, but it, it wears off soon. Um, it's it's the the recognition that mm-hmm. goes a lot further. So you know, if you send an email out to say, you know, if Robbie hadn't done this, we wouldn't have got this deal. And I want to recognize him. He's doing a great job. I got to tell you, that person's going to go home. They're going to tell their wife. They're going to tell their parents. They're going to be, you can't believe it. You know, the CEO yeah. me I did a great job. And, and so that to me works better. So that's why I said it wasn't about as much of a process. It was more about a cultural thing. If I literally ingrained it into our culture and that was part of, if you define what our culture was, that was really a big part of it. Mm-hmm. So Dan, that, that company, then you, uh, you, you end up selling it and I, you know, tell us about how, what that was like going through that and, and, uh, and how that worked out for you and your teammates and your, and, and the people, you know, the stock, some of the stockholders that had some, st- some stock in it that you shared. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So we, we kind of had sold it twice. So halfway through, we brought a private equity uh, company in. I, I took some money off the table. Some other you know, employees took money off the table. And then we grew it you know, much, much larger, really triple the size after that. And then we sold it again. I asked my, my leaders if they wanted to keep going. I said, we can sell it. We can keep it going. Um, I could buy out the, the private equity guys that are in here. Um, you know, I said, we can all put up some money. We could all buy it together. What do you want to do? And, the, you know, they wanted their money. And the, uh, so that's why we, we, we found a buyer. We sold it. And we sold it to a, to a private equity firm. And um, so then I stayed for a year. Uh, I did not get along with that private equity firm. And, and I left. And uh, so for two years, I, I had a non-compete. So what I did for two years is I fell back to all that business strategy experience that I had, both, you know, in growing companies and also selling that service to other firms like the CME. And I worked with a variety of different companies, maybe about 20 of them for two years on on implementing good business strategy um, plans. And so I would focus on developing um, strategy plans and then helping them execute those strategy plans. And Mm -hmm. Frankly, the execution part is a lot more harder than, a lot more difficult than the development of, of the plan. But they're, sure. they're both important, but it's just more difficult to execute something. And that was where I focused. I did that for two years. And before I started my current company, um, um, which is Carl Stolark Matei Partners, we go by PSM Partners. And that's where I am right now. So I started um, this with my two friends, um, Mike Matei and Dave Stolark. And we came together as friends to start a company, and it's, it's been great. So Mike worked for me at my last company at Project Leadership. He literally joined us out of college, and he grew into one of our best leaders. He went from a young, a young guy on a help desk doing help desk calls to, uh, to running a whole uh, large division. I think about a $7, 8000000 million division. Aww. And... So Mike is my partner and just a vital part of the company and one of my best friends, you know, it's like, we're, you know, we're super close, like brothers. Uh-huh. And, and then my other partner is Dave Stellark. Uh, Dave is, uh, I've also known for long, a lot, lot longer than Mike. I've known Mike for over 20 years. I've known Dave for, uh, 
I don't know, as long as I've been married. He's my wife's cousin. So I've known Dave for probably 35 years, 36 years. And uh, Dave came from the telecom industry and he was he had a super high level position at level three, Global Crossing. And, and he came from that uh, industry. He was very, very good in sales. And he's, uh, he now run, is head of our sales group here. So taking all those lessons that I learned in, you know, through the years of all these companies that we kind of went through, we were able to launch this company and to get it to grow very fast. And I think it's because I learned all those lessons. And plus I had like two great guys that are, you know, I'm super close with. So I'm, I'm super fortunate. I mean, they're super great at, at business, but we're also really good friends. We love hanging out with each other. Um, our wives all like hanging out together. It's just been awesome. A, Probably the best experience in my career. Uh, and that's cool. uh, we've had so much success as well, which makes it even sweeter. But we've, um, we went from, uh, we've been, we're five years old. So we just had our five year anniversary in January. And we went from three people, just the three of us, to I think in January we had 73 people. So All right. we had good yeah. success. What's your, what's your, what is your, um, what's your biggest niche market, uh, in that, in that, in your business today? And, um, what, what's your strongest differentiator? So our differentiator here is, so we do it services that we used to, that I did before in my career. Um, I do managed services and network infrastructure, you know, cloud projects, things like that. Right. Um, but I felt like there was a, uh, an opportunity to do something interesting. So we have a, a division that is a called, we call it our talent division. And we help find uh, full-time and temporary help for companies. So I got the idea of when I was at my last company, we had a CFO leave and I needed to hire a new CFO and my accounting firm helped me find that CFO. Mm -hmm. And they helped interview the CFO. And so that accounting firm, I think it was McGladry or something, they, they really knew us, right? And they, they, they understood how we, uh, how we worked and what was important to us and our reporting and well, our tax situation. They really knew us, right? So they were ideally suited to help us find someone or at least interview the right person and make sure that we hired the right person. Um, so I, I always was intrigued by that concept. So I took that concept to this company. I said, who can hire IT people better than us? You know, we, right. I would have my IT people interview them. I would um, interview them myself. We would know the right place to look. So that concept really, really worked. And 30% uh, of our business is this talent acquisition where we help companies hire people either full-time or, you know, I need a guy for six months type of thing. Sometimes yeah. you, need, you need just a contractor or someone to work for, for six months to uh, do a project and then leave. So we, we do both. And that's, that's been our niche, right? Uh, we don't know of any other companies, I'm sure there are, but not a lot, right, that mix those two things. Sure. And that's what we do. And it, it was so became so successful that now we do it for not just IT people, but we've, we've hired HR directors, we've hired marketing and salespeople. But, you know, I think I kind of lend on, on my background and my two partners' backgrounds to help interview and find those people as well because we have, you know, a lot of great business background, the three of us. So 
it's worked out really well. That's our niche. That's our kind of differentiating factor. Um, one thing that I don't want to do, uh, unlike the other ones, where I, the other companies I kind of build to sell, uh, we're, we never want to sell this company. Uh, we're going to try to bring our kids into it. My son works here. My partner's son works for us as well. And um, we never want to sell it. We're still very earnings focused like I was before, but I also um, have no plans to expand outside of Chicago. We just want to stay in Chicago mm -hmm. and not let people be away from their families. So, um, so Dan, when you look at that though, I mean, even when, so for us, I, I, you know, we've only sold a few companies here or there and, uh, but for us, I, I believe that we always build these businesses for great enterprise value to, to sell. If, you know, basically if it's a great, if it's a great business that people want to buy, probably means that your, your enterprise value or your, your, excuse me, your niches are strong, your profits are strong, right? And you, and you don't need, you know, the owner or whatever to be part of it, right? You have to replace yourself as the, you know, as the, as the, the, the main decision maker, let's say, right? So when I look at these businesses that we're, we're building, I always want them to build them to be sellable, very valuable, valuable in a sale, let's say, for the, you know, compared to the rest of the market. Um, you know, we want to we want to watch the enterprise value on a constant basis, even if we never want to sell. Do you, do you feel the same way, or how do you, how do you look at that? Look at I think it's great. I did it three times, right? I've been involved in three sales, uh, and I, I, you know, probably bought three or four companies too. So, I I think it's all good. I think it really relates. That's it's a very difficult decision. Whenever I work with a client from a strategy standpoint, I always kind of take them through this. It's really more of a personal decision I feel than it is a uh, a business decision. Things will certainly change um, if you decide to stay and sell or you sell half of it or, or whatever. But I believe that if you are very focused on earnings like we are and you're focused on continual growth and earnings growth and you can take those principles and keep letting them happen and, and having them occur and, and pushing those principles down to your, to your management team. That company can continue to push out profits. And if you want mm -hmm. to step away, you could step away and say, you know, just send me a check every month, right? And sure. just have that, that earning stream. I feel like sometimes, you know, that a, a big amount of money that you would get from sales is nice, but almost better is continual stream of income mm -hmm. it just gives so, you more choices i feel so i guess what i what i'm looking for you know when I, when, I, when I think about this how do you look at this do you look at it any different though you know i, I heard you when you built, built the first few companies and were part of those building those companies you were you built them to be ready to sell to be to be great acquisitions in a sale i did, I uh, did. okay but, but really is there much difference in building a company that that you're never going to sell because i mean it, you, you still need the profitability you still need the you know, to, to differentiate strong and to create value, it's almost the same thing, whether it's, whether it's a short term and a, and a sale in five, six years or long term and continual value annually year after year. I think it depends on the company. I think that, um, you know, for our type of company, for, for professional services business, a buyer typically wants to see good earnings, earnings growth, um, enough working capital and a strategy to, to put in place that's been put in place that will help it continue to happen in the future. 
Um, so if I were going to position my company for sale, I would really, really drive earnings up, short-term earnings, where if I were going to sell it, I would not be worried about short-term earnings. I would be worried about long-term earnings sustainability and mm -hmm. growth. So I would take some of my earnings and I would reinvest it in the business. So let's, you know, my business made, I don't know, let's say a million dollars to make the math easy and, and pre-tax income. I, I might take 500 grand and, and go start something else and not have to, you know, spend every last dollar or take every, bleed it out, uh, bleed all that money out for myself. I would, or my partners, I would, you know, want to reinvest it. But if I was going to sell it, I would not. I would leave it in there. And I would mm -hmm. keep trying to reduce my overhead cost and drive earnings. And, and, and I would just be making shorter term decisions sure. to drive earnings. Um, so that's what I would do. And that's what I did, right? But longer term, I'm, I'm, I mean, I want good, solid uh, earnings growth. To me, I like growing companies in a slow conservative way from an earnings standpoint. So like 15% earnings growth year over year is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, I think when it's more than that, I, you know, for me, I tend to see like a loss of clients and employees. Um, so I, if I were going to sell it, I can only kind of supercharge it for so, so much a period of time, right? I would, <laughs> I'd be able to cut overhead only for so long and to, make margins as high as they can be for so long before I would start to certain things would start to break. So I think that's how it's maybe different. If you're going to sell it, um, you would make better longer term decisions for sustainable earnings growth. Cool. Uh, Robbie, what do you think of all that? Yeah, I think it's interesting because the short sighted view is similar to what I, I know. I've read quite a bit about the stock market that, quarter after quarter, all these companies are forced to make their balance sheets look as if all their margins are standing perfectly still. And there's really no issues with internally with the business yet. Then we run into a pandemic like this and we find that there's actually not a lot of cash on hand. There's a lot of internal problems that they have that are being forced because of uh, the shareholder value that they need to portray to the public. Uh, so I agree. I think the long long-term view is in the best interest of the company and ultimately the best interest of your employees. And if your employees aren't happy, then uh, it's going to be difficult to have long-term long success. So yeah, I, I like the way that you're approaching it. I think conversely, if I, if I had a business that had something that was not, no one else had, it was, you know, this, it was, it worked great. There was huge demand for it and they're off the charts growth right? I might feel differently. I might forego earnings to drive up revenue as high as I can possibly get it, right? I might take on debt. I might take on investment in order to spur that. Um, it's risky, right? Because you can always have another competitor come in and, and maybe do it better or cheaper. But, you know, in that instance, maybe it makes sense to, to grow it, not focus on earnings and, and try to sell it quickly. But for my business and, and many businesses of people that, you know, I know and Gary knows, you know, 
long-term sustainable growth is, is, is good. And it also helps you in an environment like we find ourselves in now, right? So I, uh, I, I'm glad that we didn't have, we were very earnings focused and didn't take a ton of, you know, huge risk during this time now, you know, with uh, the virus and everything, but really more so in the, in the economic environment that'll follow this. I, I'm glad that I took the, the road that, that. So Dan, so Dan, that leads me into another question and, and uh, something we talked about is uh, recession proof businesses. I mean, uh, nothing is re recession proof in my, in my opinion overall, but there's, there's definitely industries and businesses that are way more recession proof than others, right? We focus our businesses on maintenance of all different, you know, facilities maintenance and utility energy sector maintenance, right? In the, in the products we provide because we think we're in, in better shape there. But, you know, even in this time now, we're, we're going to get hurt probably because people are going to be cutting back on maintenance because, because of this couple, you know, month and a half, two, two months, whatever it's going to be, um, that, that people are shut down from this virus, right? And then you see, sure. you know, a friend of mine is a leader, uh, a couple of friends of mine are in Schomburg actually lead a, one of the biggest uh, toilet paper um, distribution companies in the, in the country. They're doing pretty good right now, right? Yeah, and, I bet. <laughs> and another friend of mine uh, is a leader at, at, at uh, Medline, a great company that, that sells medical supplies, right? They're doing really well right now, right? Um, and, and this is a different type of environment of a, of a potential recession we're looking at and the cause of it, right? So when I, when I think about this, though, Dan, what, your, your business also looks like one that, I mean, with great, great technology improvements, IT improvements, right? More work from home and more work uh, off, off site. Are you guys focused on that right now? And tell us what you're doing in this in this uh, uh, in this crazy situation where the coronavirus uh, shutting everybody down. Well, it's it's a unique time. You know, I've been through um, a lot of different things, and you know, over 30 years. But there's you know, there's no playbook for a pandemic. I didn't have a pandemic playbook. So, uh, so we're you know we're, we're struggling with um with people you know no no new office um i just moved into a brand new office a week before this happened oh. uh, so a great time to move into an office so yeah i mean it's it's tough but at the end of the day it's from a business standpoint it's a slowdown right so were we prepared for a slowdown i was absolutely prepared for a slowdown how was i prepared i had a lot of cash on hand we didn't spend every last dollar that we had uh, we controlled our cost. We were super earnings, earnings, earnings focused to the point to where I, could, I couldn't even tell you what our revenue was um, half the time per month. I can tell you to the dollar what our earnings were, right? Mm -hmm. So we were very earnings focused. Um, the other thing that we did was we have a, a large percentage of our income is contractually recurring. So that's a key indicator that I watch every month. So I, I want to say it's, I don't know, 45% of our revenue is contractually recurring. Mm -hmm. Those contracts can kind of go away, but you know, we'll, we'll slow down. We'll shrink a little bit for sure. And, and things will be delayed, but you know, some areas of the business will pick up. So I always felt like I like diversified set of services because in a recession, some might be up, some might be down. Sure. And we're seeing that. So like our talent business, no one is hiring people right now. So that, right. that business is, you know, went to zero. Uh, but our, 
you know, our clients are all working from home. We're supporting them. We're extending contracts, like expanding contracts. We, our contracts weren't built for every single employee to work from home for an extended period of time. But we, we, we just made, we just said, look at your contract, whether it says or not, or we're going to cover that. And we're happy to do that. And so we're, we're helping them be more efficient and work from home. With security is a big deal. It's not as secure to work from home. Sure. We're helping them with things like that. So we'll get through it. And I think yep. lots of experience. And actually, frankly, you know, having two partners help me and making group decisions has been a big plus for us as, as well. So like, uh, it, sounds like you're, it sounds like you're not as much of a control freak as you were at uh, 16, 18 years old then. Nah, I, I, I kind of learned not to. I, I never thought I'd be in a partnership, but um, it's, just been, it's just been great. I mean, I get to go to work with my friends every day. We're super close and, and it's fun to have people to bounce things off of. And, you know, I'm- Great culture. Yeah, it's 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 been it's been great. So you guys uh, have you guys have core values you, you live by and and uh, and that you guys display be, you know between you guys naturally that that's part of the fabric of your, of your organization or no? Yeah, I th- we do. I mean, we we're we try to just get everyone kind of rowing in the same direction. Understand the core values from a, a business standpoint. First of all, what it takes to be successful um, and to be financially stable. But we, we want to try to take care of the, the employees the best we can. When we make money, we share money. I, last year, actually every year, right, we, we gave, I think last year, 26% of our profits to our employees and bonuses. Wow, awesome. The year before, I think it was 25. And it's all, all usually around a quarter. Uh, and when we're not making money, then we have to scale back and, and everything. So we, we try to share it with them because we never would be here with, without them when you when you go to great leaders there too who help us when a company does go to sell dan and you and you uh and and annual basis give away 25 26 percent of your profits do they buy that as uh value in ebitda or do they just chalk it up as just the culture of the business and and we're not going to give you a multiple on that on the sharing i don't think that they would i mean yeah, they wouldn't, that wouldn't be an ad back. They, I don't think that they would say that. But what I have found is that the, it's very difficult to buy a professional services firm. And typically, you know, what looks good from a spreadsheet standpoint doesn't equate well from a cultural standpoint. So, you know, the, uh, those type of things typically go by the wayside. You're like, oh, we're not going to give 26% of the money to employees when we buy your company. Well, then if they all leave, it, you know, your earnings aren't going to be very good. Right. So I, I usually find that buyers, especially financial buyers, struggle understanding how culture interacts with earnings growth. Sure. I always felt like there was a huge link between culture and earnings growth for professional, especially for a professional services company. I think it's a little bit different for a product company. Okay, and Dan, what I, what I find in culture today with, with the millennial generation and, the, and, and now the, um, the next generation, uh, what's it, the Ys? Uh, is it Y generations next after millennials? Or is it, what is it, hey, Robbie, what is it, X or Y? What are we at? I think it's Gen Z, isn't it? Is it Z? Okay, the Gen Z. Gen Z, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Z, okay. So Z and millennials, right, I, I find that, you know, they want, they want to know that the, the, the company they're working within, the business and the, and the culture, 
uh, provides value outside its, its own doors when it comes to giving back and in, engaging the community. Uh, are you guys finding that? And we sure are. And, and, and you know, we've started a foundation years ago that not for this purpose, but it's worked out well because those are the people that love getting involved in the foundation and participating. We, we, we do find that. And we have charities that we, um, that we support as well. Um, we, we don't have a foundation or anything or just one that we support. And I think that we're, we're still kind of working that out right now. There's, there's just a few um, that we do and we get people involved. And I, for us, I think that kind of works a little bit better because different people just relate differently to, to different charities. So we had uh, feed my starving children was one that we, we had and we were, went to a food pantry and, and, and helped people that way or we raise money for this or that and the company will match it. We've, we've done that. So um, what, what we do find with the, with the millennials and the Gen Z is that they, uh, they struggle with some of the after hours type stuff. So if there's something that's charitable, but it's after hours, hard to get a lot of attendance for, for those type of things because they, they mm -hmm. want to do things on their own and, you know, their own life after work. So that's been a struggle for us. Sure. Cool. So. Robbie, what else you got for my buddy Dan here? I guess I, I'd be curious if you guys have thought about, uh, I know you're a big proponent of diversifying the business, but is there any other avenues that you guys are considering looking into in, in the future from now? Or are you guys happy with the status quo where you're at? You know, um, I think that we could expand a lot more that's a topic that comes up in management meetings a lot um, but i think we're good for right now we, we we will likely start another service offering another practice down the road uh, but really what i think me and my 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 two partners are thinking about is we want to start a kind of like our own investment fund our own private equity fund uh, to incubate some new businesses so We've, we've talked to some other people in the past and um, got a couple conversations going right now of people that want to start a business, but they don't have the money to do it, but they have the background, they have a plan. So what we would do is we would fund that business, give them ownership, and then serve as, as, a, as a board and leverage kind of our experience, right, to, to grow successful businesses to do that. So we're, we'd like to incubate um, several new businesses and that would probably be something that that's of interest to me and my, my two friends. That sounds really cool. I mean, to be able to use your, your expertise and, and, you know, business management and sales management, all the things you do, you, you know, IT, all the things you do now, that's, that's awesome. That's an awesome idea. I mean, you, you've got all the consultant minds you need to, to not, maybe not all, but a, a big chunk of the consultant minds needed in any startup. That's really, that's, yeah. that's I think awesome so. idea. I think yeah. we'd be I think it'd be fun too. At this stage of my life, I mean, it'd be fun to help someone else grow something great, have them uh, become successful and you know uh, wealthy from from growing that, and that would make me happy as well. So we would we're looking forward to doing something like that. And it'd be in all different types of businesses, Dan, or be mostly in uh, in, in space that you guys are really knowledgeable in, or how do you look at that? I think it'd be in different types of businesses. We're, we're, we have a, an affinity to professional service businesses because that's my background, but I think that our backgrounds would translate to other businesses. So we're looking at different things. 
I mean, there's, there's definitely an allure to doing something different than I've been doing for 33 years. So that's, uh, that's of interest to us as well, but we'll see. I think it really depends on the, on the person, right? I mean, I think you're investing, I feel more so on the person than the idea. Uh, sure. It's all about execution. So we're looking for someone who could really execute well and, the idea is, is I think, secondary to that. Interesting way to look at it. I like, yeah. I like that. Um, so, Dan, we're, we're going we're gonna to round her up here. Uh, and Robbie will have what he's, uh, his takeaways are. You know, in, in, you know on, the, uh, on the side for fun and, and, and uh, passion outside work. You know, I know you're, I know you're a, a boater. You're, you're, I've been on your boat a couple of times. Had a blast with you and Luis on the, on the boat. Cheryl and I, what an awesome environment that is on Lake Michigan. Are you still doing that? And what else are you doing? We are, yeah. So we like boating. My, my wife, Louise, and I and our kids, we like boating and, uh, and golf. You know, boating, golfing, are, those are my, my two big things. I know that um, you're a huge golfer, too. We've had some great times playing golf together. I wish yeah. I was as good as my buddy Dan at that game. You, you give me a couple of lessons that helped me out a few times. I know that. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know how good I am, but I, but, but I enjoy it. So, yeah, it's been, I, honestly, I've been playing golf for 45 years. So wow. I always say I should, frankly, be a lot better after doing something for 45 years. So, you're, pretty sol- uh, you're a pretty solid player, man. Don't, don't, don't kid anybody. Golfing, boating, and then uh, once in a while at, at home, um, if I'm bored, which I've been doing lately, is I, I oil paint. So I do some. Really? Things. Yeah. I didn't picture you as, a, as an artist that way. Yeah. Well, I want to check that out. It's not a very good out. one, but it's kind of relaxing. Yeah. I want to check that out, man. You're going to send me some of your stuff. Okay. Cool. Well, you know what, uh, Robbie, uh, what do you got for takeaways there, brother? Yeah, I wrote a few down for us. Uh, so first, I think going back to the beginning of the conversation, I always like to sort of take it back to where we all began here is I know you mentioned that during the, the years when you were growing up, there was nothing that you could really pinpoint uh, specifically that led you to where you're at today. Uh, but I think that in itself to me was a takeaway is that sometimes you just have to listen to your inner voice uh, and trust the process that you're going down and, and know that as long as you are making moral decisions and doing what's in the best interest of yourself, your family and those around you, uh, you'll end up in a much better spot. So a uh, big takeaway for me is listen to your inner, in, uh, your inner voice. The second is to focus on the impact, not the money, uh, in, in terms of your career path that you're going down. So you want to make sure that you're as, as of much value to the company as, as possible so that ultimately you're indispensable to them and you can be seen as a resource throughout uh, your tenure with those companies. Uh, when it comes to the value of an organization if you're looking to potentially sell uh, there's methodologies that you've used to reverse engineer enterprise value uh, and ultimately that leads to better conversations during that acquisition process uh, both for you as well as the buyer uh, and in this case uh, just a more well-oiled machine that you guys are operating today and that really leads me to my next point which is to be as well-rounded as possible. Uh, and the way that I've been explaining this is to treat your career as a pyramid. Uh, and when you think about a pyramid, down at the bottom, you're always gonna have a base of knowledge. And as you work your way up, it'll come to a T. And that's where you're really, really specialized. But the wider the base you are, the more successful you'll become. Uh, and I like that analogy here. And I think it applies really well to uh, strong leadership traits. And 
lastly is uh, fewer solutions done better uh, and making sure that you're maximizing the value of your organization for your clients and that you're seen truly as a consultant uh, and non-dispensable. So thank you. Oh, you know, I, got, I, got, I got one more that I like uh, that, that I know my, I knew this about Dan already, but um, you know, it's uh, in, the, in the book, The Laws of Success, it was written in the early to mid uh, 19th century. Um, uh, I, I guess it'd be, that'd be the 20th, it'd be a 20th century, right? It was not, in the early 1900s, anyway, it was, it was written. Uh, it's the, the mid 1900s. And it was uh, uh, a bunch of, uh, it's about a bunch of the leaders of the turn of the century. But this, uh, this writer uh, basically captured the laws of success. And one of the laws he, he talked about a lot was the, uh, the, the, the law of being more valuable than you're ever paid for, right? And everything you do, you've got this innate ability to always be worth way more than you're ever worth, whether it's as an employee, as a young person, or your own job, you know, deliver newspapers and mowing lawns, doing more than you're, you're paid for, or, or then you're a CEO or, or founder of a company, and you're serving customers better than anybody else, always making yourself more, worth more, than the product you're delivering, right? I mean, it's an, it's a it's a law that he, they talked about many times over, from you know Firestone to to Henry Ford and um, uh, the Vanderbilts and all these others that, that were the the, the uh, leaders of the, of the turn of the century. So it's really I, I knew that about you already, Dan. But it's, a, it's such an important thing to, to talk about with young people, right? All you got to do is every day you in that job you're in, try to be worth more than you're paid for, and eventually it'll be noticed. And if it's not noticed there. You'll go somewhere else and you'll get a great job and you'll, and you'll be noticed. And if it doesn't work out there, go start your own thing and you'll find ways to serve customers on a consistent basis that they continually say, man, that, that, that product, that company, that leader always, always does more than, than what I expect, right? So uh, that, that's, uh, that came out strong with, with, you know, reminding me of my buddy Dan and how you think, right? But uh, it's a great trait that I, I believe is, is uh, invaluable. So. Um, thanks a lot, Dan. I really appreciate you being on our Ditch Digger CEO podcast, buddy. And uh, this would be one that uh, we're going we're to get a lot of learning opportunities for a lot of people that, that want to do something someday on their own. So. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me, Gary. Great to, great to be on. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. And uh, good, uh, good to see you again. Thank you, brother. Good to see you again. We got to get together soon, okay? I miss you. Let's do it. And when all this stuff blows over, we got to get together with the girls. Um, otherwise, but until next time, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see it. We'll see you soon. All right. All right. Thanks, Jerry. So from, from Ditch Digger CEO, we're out. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at Ditch Digger CEO and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. to build a business in America where soldiers fight for our freedom every day Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck rolling down highway
best I can Discovered entrepreneurship Scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man 